my first wife, Sarah, she used to love driving around in the car all by herself. And honestly, I, I love that too, but, but we loved it for very different reasons. I like getting in the car, turning the music up as loud as I can, windows down. And I mean, some of y'all heard me sing last week. You know it's not pretty, um, but I just belt it at the top of my lungs. But not Sarah. In fact, it was, it was, she loved it for almost the exact opposite reasons. She would get in the car, windows up, radio off, and she would just sit in silence. Complete silence. She wouldn't even answer her phone. If you called her when she was in the car by herself, she'd just hit that silent button, and she didn't want to be disturbed at all. That was her time of peace, to rest, to pray, to listen to the Lord. I want to try something this morning. As we start today, I'm going to try, I want to try something to see if we can be silent for 60 seconds. It doesn't sound like a lot, but without our phones, without the whispers, I just want to see if we can do it. Let's try now. 60 seconds of silence starting now. How did that feel? Was it awkward? Was it nice? How many of you parents of toddlers almost fell asleep? This morning, we're continuing our series on the songs of Christmas. We're going to be in Luke 1. You can start making your way there now. But we're looking at the song that Zachariah sings after his son, John the Baptist, is born. Now, Zechariah is most well-known for being struck mute and deaf when he encountered the angel Gabriel. He went from being able to hear and speak, and in a moment, his whole world was silent. And that silence, it lasted nine months. So imagine that 60 seconds drawn out until September. Zechariah was serving as a priest in Israel, he was going about his priestly duty, and he had this encounter with Gabriel. Gabriel appeared to him in the, in the temple as he was going to offer incense to the Lord. And he had this message from the Lord. Luke 1, verse 13, uh, But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will name him John. There will be joy and delight for you, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be a 
He will be great in the sight of the Lord and will never drink wine or beer. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit while still in his mother's womb. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the understanding of the righteous and to make ready for the Lord a prepared people. Within those words, Gabriel promises Zechariah two things. Rather, the Lord promises through Gabriel two things. First, right there in verse 13, he says, your prayer is answered. You're going to have a baby boy. The promise of a son coming to Zechariah and Elizabeth. He says, you're going to have a baby and you're going to name him John. But he doesn't stop there. He continues going. He makes another promise. He says, not only are you going to have a baby, but your baby has a a very specific purpose. Your little baby boy is going to be the forerunner to the Lord. The word that's used there for Lord is the word uh, kurios. I don't speak Greek. It's just my best guess. Uh, But when this word is used, it's typically referring to the Messiah. And so at the moment that Gabriel speaks this to Zechariah, he says, your son is going to be the forerunner to the promised Messiah, the Messiah that your people have been waiting generation after generation after generation. Your family gets to be a part of this. You're going to have a baby, and your son is going to prepare people for the coming Lord. Zechariah immediately, questions Gabriel and says, how can I be sure? How can I know for sure that what you're telling me is actually going to happen? And we see Gabriel's response right here in verse 20. He says, now listen, you will become silent and unable to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words. They'll be fulfilled in their proper time. And from that moment, until John was born. It's silence. Silence that for Zechariah could last forever. If these words are not fulfilled, if that prophecy doesn't come true, if that promise isn't guaranteed, that silence is going to last forever. And I've got to think that this conversation would have been on repeat going over and over in Zechariah's mind. He would surely wonder if I'm going to ever be able to speak words to anyone ever again. Will I ever be able to hear Elizabeth's voice again? He would be desperately waiting on the things that God promised to come to fruition. And then after nine months of silence, the day that Zechariah had been waiting for it finally came. His son was born. His son is born. They take him to Elizabeth and they say, what are we to call this boy? Is it a family name? What has what happened? She says, his name is John. And as you read the text, they kind of look at her like, are you sure? So they go for affirmation to Zechariah, and they sign to him, and he pulls out his first generation iPad, and he writes on that, his name is John. And then something miraculous happens. Luke 1, verse 64. Immediately, his mouth was opened and his tongue set free, and he began to speak, 
praising God. The first thing that Zechariah does after nine months of silence, not hearing or speaking, is praise God. I cannot imagine the joy or relief that he must have felt in that moment. All the people around him are astonished, and Zechariah, who's filled with the Holy Spirit, he begins to prophesy, singing a song. It's a song that reminds us, especially during this season, what Christmas is all about. It's a song that keeps us focused on all the right things. A song of praise to what the Lord had come to do and that he had delivered on another promise. And I believe that it was those nine months of silence that positioned Zechariah, that prepared him for what was to come. It made him focus. It made him dwell. It made him... Uh, remove all the distractions. And I believe that he gives us an example in his song for what we need to do if we want to have a Christmas season that is free of distraction. So if we want to have a distraction-free Christmas, the first thing that Zachariah shows us is that we must first rest in Jesus. Look at verse 67 with me. Then his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Blessed is the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. For most people, the headline on this day would have been the birth of their son, but not for Zechariah. He sings a song of worship about both of those promises that he received. Months and months before, beginning with the promise that the Messiah was coming. And, and just a side note here is, as we've dug into the first chapter of Luke, as we're looking at these songs of Christmas, I just want to mention, um, you'll notice that when Elizabeth, Zachariah's wife, she talks about John and Jesus earlier in chapter one, she's speaking about two unborn babies, and she talks about them as people. Then in Mary's song, as we really looked at in depth last week, she's probably just a few days since conception. And she talks about Jesus as a person, as a child. So don't let anybody tell you that a child is not a child until the moment of birth, or they're not a child until they're at some point of viability. A child is a child is a person at the moment of conception. Okay, we'll get back to the passage. In Zechariah's song, the long-awaited Messiah is the headline. Not to minimize baby John the Baptist who had just come into the world, but to maximize Jesus. And this was a trend that if you look at John the Baptist's life, is going to be carried throughout all of his life. To the point that John himself even says at the height of his ministry in John 3.30, he says, no, he, talking about Jesus, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. John isn't even mentioned in his dad's own song until verse 76. And then even when he is mentioned, it's in relation to how he is going to serve and lead others to Jesus. That he is going to be a, quote, prophet of the Most High. He's going to prepare a way for him. He's going to teach people that salvation only comes by the forgiveness of sin. 
It's amazing what nine months of solitude can do. Zechariah goes from questioning Gabriel to declaring God's goodness, to declaring that his promise was as good as done. Now keep in mind, Jesus is not even born yet. And Zechariah is praising God, quote, because he has visited and provided redemption for his people. Zechariah was given for nine months a gift that many of you would like to give a special person in your life. Maybe that's just me the gift of silence and solitude. While I believe that this was a rebuke for his unbelief, it was also a blessing. It was a blessing of time of resting in God, of remembering what God had done. You see, our God, he never wastes a moment. He never even wastes a moment of discipline. He always, always, always turns rebuke into reward as some have said. Paul talks about a very similar uh, theme in Romans 5. He says, The law came to multiply the trespasses, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. So I've got to imagine, especially as an Israelite priest, that Zechariah spent much of those nine months poring over the Old Testament, going back through the history, looking at the promises, the prophecies, spending much time in prayer, hearing from the Lord, asking questions, digging into his relationship, showing us what it looks like to really rest in who God is, to dig into his word, to spend time with him, to hear from him. There's probably no time in Zachariah's life that he was closer to the Lord than those nine months. As he heard from his father, he remembered his character. He relived the history of God's faithfulness for himself and the people of Israel. He would have been laser focused on who God is and what he was doing. There was no room for distraction. All the noise had been canceled out. Zechariah displayed for those around him, and I believe for us today, that we need to make this season, that we need to make our lives all about Jesus. And that starts when we rest in who he is. But he doesn't stop there. He continues singing a beautiful song. We see the next step in having a distraction-free Christmas is to walk in victory. It's to walk in victory. We'll pick up in verse 69. It says, he, he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, just as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets in ancient times. Salvation from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. He has dealt mercifully with our ancestors and remembered his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant that we, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, would serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. Zechariah here is singing of battle, of deliverance and victory. He declares that God has raised up a horn of salvation. And this is no musical horn. He's not singing about a trumpet. He's singing about a fierce weapon. And everyone hearing this song would begin to come up with images in their mind from the Old Testament of a weapon made for battle. 
1 Kings 21.11 describes it. It says, Then Zedekiah, son of Chenana, uh, made iron horns and said, This is what the Lord says. You will gore the Arameans with these until they are finished off. That's a nice warm message for Christmas, right? Talking about the horn of salvation, Pastor John MacArthur explains it this way. He says, That picturesque Old Testament expression spoke of power to conquer and kill like that of a large horned beast. Here, Zechariah used it to refer to the Messiah, picturing him as a powerful animal who would lower his horns, drive out the enemy, and deliver his people. You know, we often talk about misconceptions when it comes to the Messiah. And one of the biggest misconceptions, especially in the first century, was that he was going to come as a warrior king, that he was going to set up his earthly rule. He was going to restore Israel. He was going to vanquish Rome. He was going to vanquish any of the oppressors, and he was going to be the warrior king on the earth. And it's passages like this one that lead many to believe that. You see, Jesus was promised to come as the horn of salvation. It declared that he was going to fight. It promised that he was going to win, that he was going to offer victory and freedom and deliverance to all. In this part of the song, it portrays Jesus as that warrior and deliverer, the promise keeper and the rescuer. Just look back at verse 74. It says, having been rescued from the hand of our enemies, we would serve him without fear and holiness and righteousness in his presence all our days. And remember, Zechariah is singing this before Jesus is ever born. That actually happens in the next chapter. Zechariah is claiming the promise of what the Messiah is going to do. He was singing about something that had already happened because in his mind and in his heart, he he knows that when God makes a promise, it's as good as done. And that's how he was able to walk in victory. And the same is true for us today. Because while Jesus did not come with a sword to fight the Romans, to make life easy, to set up this geopolitical empire, he did come to bring victory, to deliver, to rescue. He is the horn of salvation. You know, like most kids, Sometimes my kids get scared at night. In fact, this morning with that thunder, I knew exactly what they were afraid of. And about 5.15, they were uh, in my bed. But oftentimes, they don't even know what they're afraid of. They just know that they're afraid. And in those moments, I like to ask them two questions. The first question I start with is, do you know that your daddy will do anything to protect you? And if I'm being honest, it always takes them too long to answer that question. But they come to the right answer. They, they say, yes, yes, we know that. But the second question is so much more important. But I always ask them, who is in control of everything? My four little ones quickly say, God, God is in control. And what I'm teaching them in this moment, or in these kinds of moments, is that they can put their focus on God because they know that he is always victorious, that he is always in control, that he always has a plan. 
You see, when we're not distracted by the battles that are raging around us, we're able to focus on the victory that Jesus already has. We're able to walk in freedom because we have been delivered. We can walk in that victory because God, he came to us. He is our Emmanuel. He stepped out of heaven and he came to this earth, Jesus the Messiah, to rescue us and declare that we are victorious. One of the sweetest verses in all of Scripture gets brushed over at this time. We read it, and we don't really think about it. Luke 2, verse 11, it says, Today in the city of David, a Savior was born for you. Today in the city of David, a deliverer came. A rescuer came. A redeemer was born for you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. It's one of the most hope-filled sentences in all of Scripture. Because of Jesus' coming, because of the victory that we have in what we are promised, we can serve Him faithfully, without fear, as Zechariah sings. And when we walk in that victory, it removes the distractions of the battles we want to have a distraction-free Christmas this year, we first must rest in who Jesus is. We must walk in his victory. And finally, we must run to the light. We must run to the light. Whether it's Darth Vader versus the Jedi, Thanos versus the Avengers, the Grinch versus all the Who's in Whoville, Every great story, in one way or another, it depicts this battle between good and evil, darkness and light. Just think about all the Hallmark movies that are out right now. You know the one. Small town girl, goes to the big city, falls in love, gets engaged to the the business executive who's rich, he's well-spoken, he's a little bit brash, and for some reason she's got to go back home, right? Right? I don't know why, she always has to go back home and she sees the lowly shopkeeper. They have some kind of history, but she falls back in love with him. And so the question must be answered, who does she go with? What is the right thing for her to do? How does she move forward? Have you guys seen that one? You all have because it's the same movie 35 times over, right? If you've seen one, you've seen them all. But even in those love stories, the question is being asked, the undercurrent of those stories is good versus evil, light versus dark. Look at the end of this song, verse 78. Because of our God's merciful compassion, the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Light versus darkness is a concept that we can understand. It's an illustration, it's an image that makes sense in our minds. Zacharias sings here that the dawn from on high will visit us to shine on those who live in darkness. The word that's translated into the CSB, dawn, is literally the sunrise. Zechariah is singing about the sunrise. 
the reality that Israel has been sitting in darkness. It has been nighttime in Israel for a long time that they have been anxiously waiting and looking forward to the day when they see the sun come up over the horizon. They've been waiting on Jesus, the dawn of a new day. Because when Jesus comes, he brings light, he brings life, he brings peace, he brings hope. And I love that throughout the whole New Testament, there's a theme of light versus darkness. Just a few examples of that. John 1 verses 4 and 5, in him, talking about Jesus, was life. And that life was the light of men. That light, it shines in the darkness and the darkness did not overcome it. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them again. I am the light of the world. Anyone who follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. 2 Corinthians 4, in their case, the God of this age, that Satan, has blinded the mind of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And last but certainly not least, when John is writing about the new Jerusalem, he says this in Revelation 21, I did not see a temple in it because the Lord God, the Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city doesn't need a sun or a moon to shine on it because the glory of God illuminates it. Its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Zacharias sings about Jesus, the light coming to visit. Shines in the darkness to guide our feet into the way of peace. Jesus is the light. Jesus brings life. He brings wisdom and understanding. He brings peace that is sung about here that can only happen when we experience, we can only experience that when we cling to the light, when we run to the light. That light is Jesus. Jesus the Messiah. Jesus the Savior. Jesus the horn of salvation. Jesus our victory. Jesus our deliverer. There is nothing more important that we could focus on this Christmas than who Jesus is and run to the things that he illuminates. That's where peace comes from. That's where purpose comes from. To know Jesus, to sit with Jesus is to know peace, is to know rest, and to experience true fulfillment. We can celebrate a distraction-free Christmas by running to the light. You know, I think especially this time of year, we often relegate Jesus to being this baby that came, that's helpless, that's cute and pretty and quiet. And we think of ourselves like the wise men that we need to get our gifts and we need to take them to Jesus. That's not our Jesus. That is not our Jesus. When we focus on him, when we rest in who he is, we quickly realize that he is our warrior king, that he came to deliver, that he came to redeem, that he came to bring promised victory. And friends, we can experience that today and we're promised that we get to experience that for eternity. When we know him, we follow his lead.
we let his light destroy the darkness in our hearts. You know, this morning, some of us, we need to remember the victory that we already have in Jesus and be reminded that we can walk in freedom. And there are others probably who who are maybe in the thick of the battle today, who feel that darkness creeping around the corner, who, who feel that old self trying to steal your joy today. And you need to remember that you have victory and you can run to the light. But there may be others here today who have been stuck seeing Jesus as that helpless baby and not recognize him as conquering warrior, king. And if that's you today, I want you to know that Jesus came to rescue you, to have a relationship with you, to lead you into glorious purpose and to promise you salvation and victory forever. That's why Jesus came. Wherever you're at this morning, I want you to know that we're going to have some people available as we sing a song of response. And it would be a privilege for any one of us to talk with you about something you've heard today, to pray with you about things going on in your life, or to share a little bit more about who Jesus is. Will you pray with me as we respond? Father God, we thank you that you sent Jesus to this earth for us. That he didn't come to to try and, and make us look better, to feel better. He didn't come to set up an earthly kingdom that would perish. But he came to be a conquering, delivering, redeeming king. To usher in a kingdom that would never end. So, Father, today I pray that if nothing else happens this morning, Lord, that we would see you for who you are. That you have chased us from eternity past. You have pursued us. And you have given us everything that we need in Jesus for life now and life eternal. So, God, we praise you this morning. Lord, we ask that you would move in this place. God, that we would worship you. It's in the name of Jesus, I pray.